I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, episode 172, my review of the second season of For All Mankind. Well, I reviewed all of the first season and the first episode of the second season, if that makes any sense, in an earlier podcast this year, on Light On, Light Through, on February 21st, 2021. So if you'd like to hear my thoughts about that, and they were good thoughts, just scroll down wherever you are, a few episodes, and you'll see that episode of this podcast, February 21st, 2021. What I'm now going to do is review episodes 2.2 to 2.10, the finale which was just on today or late last night. I watched it a few minutes after 12 midnight East Coast time, and it was right up there, one of the nice things about Apple TV+. And the way I do these reviews is I reviewed each of these episodes in my blog. I wrote a short review about each of these episodes, and I'll put links to those in the show notes to this episode, so you'll be able to see those as well. And if you'd like to read these, just go to those links. But the point I'm making is what you're going to hear now is really a compilation of, let's see if my arithmetic is right, some nine reviews, each one written a few minutes after I saw the episode over the past few months. So let's begin with episode 2.2, which I entitled my review of that episode, The Peanut Butter Sandwich. And in some ways, my favorite scene in that episode of For All Mankind was indeed Margot struggling to get a peanut butter sandwich out of a vending machine back in the early 1980s. Now, here's a woman who plays a major role getting people to and back from the moon, and she's doing battle with a recalcitrant vending machine. But her scientific knowledge about negative pressure saves the day and gets the sandwich to drop just as her savvy is still working to get people up there on the moon and back again safely. Otherwise, in this episode, it was really good to see John Lennon in this alternate history alive and well in the 1980s. And of course, complaining about Ronald Reagan and Nancy. And it was reassuring to see the Mars mission still in prime focus, although it continues to be delayed and more of its funding allocated elsewhere to the moon. This uncovers what will be a significant problem in this alternate reality. In one sense, it has to be easier to get to Mars with an active base on the moon. On the other hand, the needs of the moon base will divert attention and money from a voyage to Mars. For that reason, 
we may have an easier time getting people to Mars in our reality with nothing much on the moon at present other than grand memories of the past. I'm just saying that rhetorically. I have a feeling everyone's going to get to Mars in for all mankind a little sooner than we are in our reality. Now, there's a question of who may be on that first ship with people to Mars, and that was also answered in part to people who were on the moon. Danielle and Gordo are slated to be going back there. My guess is, before this season is over, Ed will be back in space, too. I'm hoping that he'll be on the first voyage to Mars. Well, in my review of For All Mankind, episode 2.3, I entitled that review, quote, Guns to the Moon, unquote. It was a remarkably unlunar episode, 2.3 was, that is, with almost no new action on the moon and barely a smidgen of alternate history. In fact, The closest this episode got to the moon was the hotly debated option of arming Jamestown so our astronauts could maintain control of the lithium mine the Soviets stole from us up there. And a good debate it was. Decided, of course, in favor of arming our astronauts. Meanwhile, down here on Earth, Tracy's take on Ed allowing Gordon to go back to the moon is, quote, boys will be boys, unquote. She's upset because she doesn't want the story of her going back to the moon to be the once married couple back together again on the moon. You know what? I'm with Ed and Gordon on this one, but I guess that proves Tracy's point of boys will be boys. Now, Ed also figured in the other big part of this episode's narrative, coming to terms with the loss of his son, Shane, last season. The emotion was important and the acting good, but the situation was a little obvious. Adopted daughter Kelly wants to go to Annapolis. I'd say here that, in general, the family-focused episodes of For All Mankind work best when set against people pushing the boundaries of humanity up onto the moon, or at least on the way to the moon. This brings us to episode 2.4 of For All Mankind. I entitled my review of that, Close to Reality. And I'll start this part of the review by saying I thought episode 2.4 up on Apple TV was my favorite episode as of then of this second season and the reason is that for a variety of reasons it coaxed me into nearly believing that this alternate history was a real history and what I was watching on the screen was a true story of astronauts who had made it to the moon and we're really planning on riding to Mars someday soon in those early 1980s. This episode really felt like that was the way it truly was and was supposed to be, the way it was meant to be. 
And we are the ones living in the alternate reality of coming out of a pandemic and all that when we're not watching for all mankind on the screen. John Lennon not assassinated and organizing a conference for peace in the early 1980s was one big reason. The Pathfinder as a ship that will go to Mars and how it will be crewed was another reason. Both of those developments seemed as natural and as meant to happen as the sun rising tomorrow. And I, for one, also liked every single one of the personal stories in this episode. Molly appointed by Ed to take over for him at NASA after he appoints himself to lead the mission to Mars. That felt just right. So did Ed's giving Danielle the captain's seat in the moon mission. Even Tom Paine seemed the most human he's been in this series. And it was inspiring to hear how much he, too, believes in our future in space. The very ending of this episode, of course, was literally and figuratively a call back to Earth. One way in which the alternate reality of for all mankind and our real existences do coincide is that even getting slightly off this planet always carries spur-of-the-moment life-and-death risks. I thought about episode 2.5, what to title it, and I decided to call it Johnny and the Wrath of Khan. It was another good episode of For All Mankind with lots of time for Jamestown on the moon, and that's always one of my favorite places in this series. And the touches of our reality which made it through to this alternate reality were also very enjoyable to see. I especially like Johnny's, that's Johnny Carson's, interviews with Tracy on the Moon and Ed's mention of The Wrath of Khan as a movie option. It was good to see the Star Trek franchise thriving, even in this alternate history. The scenes and stories back on Earth were, as usual, the least interesting for me. Gordo's condition is getting boring already. Likewise, Ed's interactions with his family, and for that matter, even Molly being tough at NASA. We've seen all of this in slightly different configurations many times in this series. It was good to see Ellen with her true love, though. She remains one of the most interesting, unpredictable characters in the ensemble. Back to Jamestown. Tracy's rough time there makes sense and was good to see played out. The scene between her and the commander of the base was fresh, as was the arrival of the military unit. As of now in this season's narrative, and this is at the end of episode 2.5, the best scenes are the build-up for some of the big stories ahead. And those will no doubt be U.S. and Soviet relations in space, on the moon, and on Earth, and I hope the Pathfinder mission to Mars. I'm looking forward to seeing all of that happen. 
In the meantime, the best thing about this second season, as I mentioned in my review of the previous episode, is the feeling it conveys that what we're seeing on the screen is more than an alternate reality and in some real sense actually happened too. Kudos to the series and Ronald D. Moore for creating and stirring that excellent impression. I entitled my review for All Mankind 2.6 Couplings. It was a really excellent episode of For All Mankind. I'd say the best so far of the second season. The theme, I'd say, was couplings. First and foremost, in terms of space travel and alternate history, would be the Apollo-Soyuz joint mission, or as of course the Soviets would have it, Soyuz-Apollo. This mission is a perfect vehicle for both the intertwining narratives, humans in space, and the alternate history of the Soviets getting to the moon very shortly before the United States. And as a special treat, it's Alita who comes up with the final fix to the technological solution of the docking problem in which both sides want to do the penetrating and neither one the passive receiving. And there were some good human coupling stories in this episode, too. I'm glad that Gordo told Sam he aimed to get Tracy back. I guess the odds are against him, but hopeless romantic that I am, I really hope he succeeds. And Ellen and Pam were good to see together, too. The scene in which Ellen breaks the news to her husband was really moving. In many ways... I thought it was the best scene in this episode, in which just about every scene vied for being the best, including that ominous last scene in which our astronauts are now in Russia. Of the two groups, the astronauts and the cosmonauts learn to work together in free America. But the Soviet Union was totalitarian, and the question will be, whether the humanity we saw in the cosmonauts in America, including another primo scene in which we learn the truth about Laika the dog, that is the first dog to be in space, the first animal to be in space, the first living thing to be in space, by which I mean to come from planet Earth and be launched into space, Probably there are billions of living things way out there in space, in other solar systems, maybe even in this solar system, and in other parts of the universe that we don't even know about. But anyway, it was good to find out the true story of Laika. And the question at the end of this episode is, will that good relationship between astronauts and cosmonauts in America survive on the other side of the world? I entitled my review of For All Mankind 2.7, Alternate History Surges. It was a flat-out great episode of For All Mankind 2.7 was, that is, with some of the best alternate history gambits of the seasons. And it propels this episode into being one of the best episodes, I'd say, in the overall series. In my never-humble opinion, that is. First, the minor alternate history stories were fun as always, like 
Jimmy Carter being a senator from Georgia. But there were two major alternate history changes, which were not only jolting, but put the narrative on a new course. One was Thomas Paine in Korean Airlines Flight 007, shot down by the Soviets with no survivors in 1983. Now, in our off-screen reality, Payne served as NASA Administrator only from March 1969 to September 1971. That was the period in which we, of course, landed on the moon. His ambitious subsequent plans for Americans in space, however, including a mission to Mars in 1981, well, those fell on deaf ears with President Nixon, making Nixon, in my book, one of the worst impediments to space travel in our history. In our reality, Payne died of natural causes in Los Angeles in 1992. And for all mankind, Payne is appointed to NASA by Reagan. President Ted Kennedy went with some other administrator. And Payne is a dynamic and important character in this season. So his death in KAL 007, in addition to putting a real historical character into a passenger plane that was notoriously shot down, itself a bold move, well, that sets in motion all kinds of highly significant developments. Ellen becomes acting NASA administrator, Reagan becomes more aggressive towards the Soviets, and the Apollo-Soyuz joint mission is stalled. Which brings us to the second major alternate history development in this episode. We learn, almost offhand, that the Challenger won't blow up. The O-ring problem is discovered before it can do any tragic damage. And in a brilliant story development in this episode, the Soviets have stolen our plans for the space shuttle, including the defective O-ring design, before the defect was discovered. Margot has a dilemma. She's told not to tell the Soviets about the O-ring flaw. After all, they not only stole our shuttle plans, but shot down KAL-007, which killed Tom Paine. But as someone who is ultimately most devoted to humans in space, transcending national rivalries, Margot can't bring herself not to warn the Russians. In effect, she embodies the series' title for all mankind. Look, it's a difficult ethical dilemma and I'd guess that Margot's decision won't receive universal acclaim from all viewers. The ending of the episode, though, in which Tracy on Reagan's order retakes the Soviet base on the moon, which they took from us, is indisputably a reason for cheering, I'd say, and a good way to conclude this superb episode. Next, For All Mankind, episode 2.8, which I think of as really lost in translation. Now, in terms of going out into our solar system, the only really significant event happened at the very end of For All Mankind 2.8, but it was a significant event indeed. We, the Americans, killed one Soviet cosmonaut and barely wounded another on the moon. 
our astronaut marines thought the Soviets were reaching for a weapon when they were reaching only for a translation card. This brings a whole new devastating meaning to lost in translation. Because what has now been lost in this alternate history is the very thin veneer of peace in space. The for all mankind mantra that is the very title of the series. Now true, the Soviets took that lunar base from us, but surely there had to be a better response than bringing our violence on Earth up to the moon. That repudiation of peace, though, is consistent with the Ronald Reagan we know from our own reality. Although his anti-ballistic missile Star Wars initiative, which, by the way, I strongly supported, undermined the Soviet Union and got it to crumble, Reagan's militarism in South America, in the Nicaragua Contra business, almost led to the undoing of his administration. We were provoked in both realities. True, ours and the one and for all mankind by the Soviet Union shooting down of the civilian KAL-007 airline. But sending a military force to the moon with shoot-to-kill orders if necessary, I'd say was not the way to go. The U.S. in this alternate history also wants to arm the Pathfinder flight to Mars. This would not be to fight off Martians. In our reality, again, Trump and he shade the Space Force. Now, I'm all in favor of military in space if we're talking about Captain Kirk and the Federation. But that's idealistic fiction about the future, both in our reality and in For All Mankind, and in For All Mankind at this point. It's fiction about an alternate past, not the future. That past looks, as of episode 2.8, to be leading to a far more dangerous future than Star Trek. Now, although I don't like that development at all, kudos again to For All Mankind for showing it to us, or showing us to us, in this new episode. Next to last episode of Season 2, 2.9, I think of as Relationships, and that episode was a night for all kinds of profound changes in relationships and for all mankind, in addition to some of what happened on the moon. Here are the changes. Karen told Ed she slept with someone last week, but didn't tell him who. My take, she shouldn't have told him about last week at all especially when he was on the verge of blasting off on a new mission. Ed couldn't quite blast off, though, with a woman he later meets at a bar. Apologies for the pun. I was sorry to see that happen, though. Molly and Wayne almost break up over Molly's insistence on going to Mexico for a quack treatment of her glaucoma, but she comes to her senses, and she and Wayne hug and are staying together good. Tracy and Gordo are back in bunk together on the moon, yes. And Ellen and Pam break up. More specifically, Pam leaves so as not to get in the way of Ellen maybe being elected president someday. And that great alternate reality flourish deserves a paragraph of its own. 
or at least a couple of comments, Lee Atwater, a real historical, political, operated genius, depending upon how you look at it, in our reality helped Reagan win twice and George H.W. Bush win the presidency once. And Atwater thinks Ellen should run for Congress and eventually president. Now, other than Atwater being a Republican, I think that's a great path for all mankind to follow in subsequent seasons. And I look forward to that. But back to the moon for now in this alternate 1983 history. Of course the Soviets were bound to attack on the moon, even as they went ahead with Apollo Soyuz, because they had to take some revenge for what happened with Tracy's team. That is, the killing of one cosmonaut and the badly wounding of another. But you know, it was tough to see, especially after Danielle earlier quoted from Star Trek. Let's face it, the U.S. and the Soviets at war is a poor path indeed to a united federation. And the season two finale, just up on Apple TV Plus today, I think of as definitely not the end. Now, this finale was about as good as it gets, which is about as good as any science fiction, space travel, alternate history can get, which, by my lights, is grand indeed. And apropos space travel, the finale covered all the bases. The U.S. and USSR in this one hour attacked each other on the moon with loss of life on both sides and made peace in space with a defiant Soyuz docking and on Earth where this docking inspired the war-prone Reagan to reach his hand out in peace to and drop off. Soviet leader. I have to say, though, that in the alternate history news clip of their meeting, that is Reagan and Andropov, it sure looked to me like it was Reagan and Gorbachev at the meeting, not Andropov. But, okay, no problem. Maybe that's just me. Now, two highlights of the near war on the moon and on Earth were Ed firing on and obliterating the sea dragon, that's a great name for a ship, but it's gone now. Sacrifice to the cause of peace. And there was some great sequences in how that firing on the sea dragon came to happen on Pathfinder. The action on the Jamestown moon base was also nail-biting and heart in the mouth. Now, I would much rather have seen Gordo and Tracy survive, of course, but they're not surviving, losing their lives by just a minute or two was tragic, heartbreaking, but realistic. I also very much like Kelly quoting John Lennon, quote, everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. Kelly does this to get her bearings in her turbulent life. Now that quote does not come from a John Lennon song that we know. It's not even certain that the quote comes from Lennon. He might well have heard it from the Maharishi. 
but maybe in the alternate reality that is for all mankind, John Lennon really did say this. He wasn't assassinated in that reality. And the world of the early 1980s therefore has had a few precious more years to get to know Lennon and his work, and that's more than fine with me. I think Lennon's assassination was one of the most grievous of the 20th century, and I sent my time traveler, Jeff Harris, back in time to save John Lennon in my novel, The Loose Ends Saga. You can find a link to that in my show notes, too. I'm not going to tell you if Jeff Harris succeeded. I will tell you, though, that I love the very ending of this second season of For All Mankind. We humans on Mars in the year 1995. That's what may well have happened had the Soviets beaten us to the moon in 1969. That's really what For All Mankind is all about. And we'll see that play out next season. Now, I sure hope we see that by the end of this decade in our reality. In the meantime... I'll watch the third and every ensuing season of For All Mankind and be back here with reviews. Thank you, Ronald Moore, and everyone who has put together such a wonderful alternate history space travel series. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that review of the second season of For All Mankind. I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. Could be another review, could be political commentary, who knows. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson built code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries. 